coup has failed. Barnaby's reign of terror is over. And thanks to your uncomfortably positive feedback in the comments section about him taking my place, you might not be hearing from him for a while. I'm a jealous guy. I'm quite protective of this seat. No, I jest. Thank you for covering for me, Barnaby. Who joins me today? I am delighted to be back in my place, Michael, in the second seat while you reclaimed your throne. And hug uh, Sameach to you, to all the Jews celebrating Passover and Ramadan Mubarak to everyone. This is this is the kind of thing I should have been up to date on exactly what I should be, uh, what celebrations I should be noting at the start of the show. Anyway, all I'll say is next time you cover for me, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be because I'm on some like gorgeous holiday instead of sick at home. But thank you very much for that. Tonight, we have three big stories for you, a new crackdown in Palestine. We're going to be talking about Boris Johnson. He's very unpopular at the moment. Some very entertaining polling into what the public think about our prime minister. And we will end on the fallout for the government's ridiculous, hideous plan to deport asylum seekers halfway around the world. This time last year, one of the key events that led to protests erupting across Palestine was the Israeli storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan. This year, the Israelis have done it again on Friday as thousands of Palestinians gathered for morning prayers at Islam's third most holy site, Israeli forces decided to raid the compound. Tear gas, stun grenades and rubber bullets were fired inside the mosque. Outside, bystanders were attacked indiscriminately. Israeli Defense Forces also attacked journalists trying to record the raid. That was journalist Rami Al-Khatib, whose hand was broken. He told Al Jazeera, they brutally emptied the compound. They were attacking the mosque staff, normal people, elders, young people. There were many injured people. They fired rubber bullets inside Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. They were beating everyone, even the paramedics. They hit them. As a result of the dawn raid, medics reported that 158 Palestinians were injured. And the Palestinian Red Crescent reported that Israeli forces refused to allow ambulances into the site. But the attack on the mosque is only the latest in a series of Israeli assaults on the occupied territories since the beginning of April. This month, at least 14 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli security forces. It's the result of a crackdown following the murder of two Israelis by a Palestinian gunman who opened fire outside a busy Tel Aviv bar. That attack was condemned by Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority. And amongst the Palestinians killed by the Israeli security forces were Garda Sabteen, a 47-year-old widow and mother of six, also killed was 34-year-old lawyer Mohammed Asaf, reportedly after dropping his children off at school. You can see his family grieving him here. Oh, 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 
Also killed was 16-year-old Mohammed Zakane, shot while heading home from his job at a produce shop to break his Ramadan fast. The Palestinian authorities have condemned the attacks on the civilian population as amounting to collective punishment. And all of this comes only months after Amnesty International declared Israel an apartheid state, a finding rejected by both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Earlier today, I spoke to Inez Abdel Razek, advocacy director at the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy, who was speaking to me from Jerusalem. I began by asking whether the raid on the Al-Aqsa compound should be seen as part of a wave of escalation similar to that which we saw last year. Yes, I think this is the same type of repression. Uh, We're seeing this every year. It has been repeated. I think this is the same type of violence that has led to the Second Intifada. So Israel is, uh, you know, accustomed to uh, repressing Palestinians, whether in Jerusalem or elsewhere, and making sure they're maintaining their violent control over Palestinians and their boot on their neck. Could you talk about the significance of the, of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in particular, and also the significance of the date and, and why this raid happened when it did? It's Ramadan, which means that Palestinians are gathering in groups uh, in Al-Aqsa and in the Esplanade, in the Haram al-Sharif, as a place, as a public space for, you know, getting iftar and getting together with families. So it's a, it's a time where people are gathering within the old city uh, through Damascus Gate. And I think it's a time where the Israelis particularly, you know, are uh, ramping up their uh, militarized repression against Palestinians because there is obviously a higher number of Palestinians that are treated as a demographic and security threat all year long. And do these raids happen more often at the Al-Aqsa compound than they do in other mosques? Or is it just that we, we hear about them there because of the, the significance of that mosque? There is a significance of that mosque. I think for Palestinians uh, all over Palestine, that religious site has a, has a particular place in their heart. It's also not only religiously, but it's one of the very few public spaces left in Jerusalem for Palestinians to gather because uh, eventually Jerusalem is annexed. It has been taken over by Israelis. Israelis are making sure that Palestinians are unwelcomed in their own city. So it's one of the few places left for Palestinians to, to enjoy time together. So I suppose that that could be a specific reason for why that seems to so often get raided. Um, I want to talk about the broader crackdown that's going on across Palestine at the moment. So as I understand it, 14 people have been killed in the past few weeks. And this seems to be, or the, the Israeli authorities are saying this is in response to Israelis who were killed in Tel Aviv by a lone gunman. The Palestinian Authority have said that the repression that has followed that amounts to collective punishment. Is that how you understand what's been going on? Yes, Israel is accustomed to collective punishment against Palestinians. Gaza has been under a total blockade for 15 years. Now Jenin has been besieged for the past weeks. Unfortunately, you know, the, Israel is a military occupation. It's a colonial ruling. So they want to make sure that Palestinians remain under their control and the violence is being felt by Palestinians every day. So there is time like this where it's, it's much brutal you know, there's been 355 Palestinians killed last year. So there is Palestinians killed every week. And I think like it's, again, with this, I think, system and colonial ruling, Palestinians are, you know, treated as as subhumans. They are feeling humiliated. They're under racial uh, discriminatory rules. And they're asked to just, you know, bind their back and, you know, accept to be beaten, to be 
threatened under violence every day. And it's only when Israelis feel the violence that they redouble on this violence that we've seen in the past weeks. Much of our audience will have read and, and watched a lot about Israel and Palestine this time last year when there was those airstrikes on, on Gaza, the events in Sheikh Jarrah, for example. Could you talk a bit about what's happened since then? How has Palestinian resistance evolved since this time last year? How has Israeli repression evolved since this time last year? Yes, again, unfortunately, international media only uh, talk about Palestinian reality and Palestinian daily life under apartheid, under uh, repressive occupation when rockets are falling from Gaza. But the reality is that the resistance, again, and the, the daily reality of, of brutal violence of occupation is every day. So what has, you know, how it has translated means that, you know, people in Beta in the north of the West Bank have been resisting every day the takeover of their hills by new settlements. People in Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, have continued to fight against their forced expulsions. People in Silwan, in East Jerusalem, against their forced expulsions. People in Masafariyata in South Hebron Hills are just trying to remain. I think Palestinians every day, their resistance is to survive, is to stay in their homeland because Israel's larger project that is, you know, translated into this, this violence now in Jerusalem is to either expel Palestinians or to make sure that they are isolated and, and ghettoized. And a question which relates specifically to politics in Britain. There's currently a big backlash against BDS, and we're also seeing leaders of both political parties, so the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, sort of push back against the judgment made by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem that Israel practices apartheid. What do you make of, of Western politicians rejecting those conclusions and also trying to clamp down and delegitimize things such as boycott, divest and, and sanctions? It's outrageous because, again, it, it, it's with Palestinians only. You know, when um, such organizations that have international credibility, like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN, when it comes to analyzing what is happening in uh, that, what Israel is doing, automatically it's it's kind of criticized and undermined as being either anti-Semitic or false when they're taken very credibly when it comes to Myanmar or other places in the world. So there has been this strategy, you know, played by Israel and related groups that are calling themselves NGOs, but are smearing groups that are constantly criminalizing Palestinian solidarity and, and Palestinian NGOs and civil society. And I think this is the double pain that we have, the double uh, battle is not only do we have to resist against a violent occupation and colonial ruling, but we also have to justify our own humanity and kind of justify why we're seeking just our basic rights, not to be criminalized for that. Something which is endlessly frustrating in reporting on Palestine is how violent repression by a militarized state is so often framed as clashes between two equal sides. Take this from Reuters. Palestinians clash with Israeli police at Jerusalem holy site, 152 injured. Or this from The Times. Clashes at Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem leave more than 150 injured. And finally, this from the BBC. Jerusalem, over 150 hurt in clashes at Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. All these headlines describe clashes which left lots of people injured. It's not suggested who injured who, and the passive voice is used. This is not Israelis injuring Palestinians or Palestinians injuring Israelis. Instead, a clash happened, people were injured. It's, it's just something that happened, that's it. So why is this wrong? 
Well, the numbers involved will give us a clue. In these so-called clashes, 150 Palestinians were injured. That's according to Palestinian medics. And the number of injuries on the Israeli side, free. That's according to the Israeli police. The other indicator as to why these headlines are misleading is the weapons used. According to Reuters, the police attacked Palestinians with rubber bullets, stun grenades and batons. According to Israeli police, Palestinians threw firecrackers and stones. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, what is ignored by the clashes narrative is the broader context in which this repression takes place. It's not just that one side is better armed than the other or that more people from one side got injured. No, what matters most is that each of these immediate local conflicts exist in a reality where one side is occupying the other. The constant background is one of fundamental injustice. And in a time when Western pundits rightly claim armed resistance is justified for Ukrainians resisting their occupation, we might expect them to reflect on whether they should grant that same right to the people of Palestine. But no, it seems that's too much to ask when Palestinians resist their occupation, even just by throwing stones, they become fair game for heavily armed police. Over the last few weeks, as you say, Michael, we've entered a kind of alternative universe. Refugees welcomed and given free train journeys, not left to drown. I've watched British journalists film people making Molotov cocktails to throw at their invaders. Reporters cheering on the resistance, defending homes and hospitals. Posters on London streets I've seen saying, scan this QR code to send humanitarian and military assistance to Ukraine. Well, in Palestine, people are chased from their homes. Their olive groves uprooted to make way for settlers. And children whose grandparents prayed at Al-Aqsa are banned from even entering Jerusalem. Soldiers with machine guns keep them even from visiting the homes that once were theirs. So this mosque matters not only because of its holiness, it's the third holiest site in Islam, but also because it's one site, one small sliver, where the colonized may gather to honor God, and the colonizer will not let them have even that. On Friday, they arrested 300 people in just one hour at the mosque. They attacked journalists and worshippers. They injured, I think, 160 people. And if I put up posters in London saying, scan this QR code to give military assistance for the people praying at Al-Aqsa, I'd go straight to prison. Just two months ago, our government moved to ban by law, you hinted at this, Michael, our government moved to ban by law some pension funds just from choosing to boycott Israel, while Israel kills people. So they call Palestinians terrorists, and they ask, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? And then they use the law to crack down on nonviolent citizen boycotts. None of this is strange, because the whole Western world, which claims to stand for freedom, is built on the violence, the dispossession, the exploitations of empire and capital. That's why they all support Israel. It's not because Jews are especially powerful. It's because colonial solidarity is a powerful thing. There'd be no White House today, there'd be no Pentagon without the near extermination of the indigenous inhabitants of those places. So how can we be surprised when these powerful people care not at all as Palestinians are massacred at prayer? They're perfectly consistent. I just want to give one more personal thought. It's Passover now. We have so many memories in the Jewish tradition of powerful oppressors who would not let us live and pray in peace. Every single week on Shabbat, we read a Haftorah from the books of the prophets in synagogue to remember times when we could not even read our Torah, the five books of Moses. Our holy books were banned, uh, burned, desecrated. 
we learn that God struck down all those pharaohs and oppressors, but God didn't do it alone. He did it with Moses, who killed a slave driver and said, let my people go, with Esther and Mordechai, who defeated Haman's plots, with Maccabees, who waged a guerrilla struggle against a colonizer. The Israeli state should learn that lesson. They're not the Maccabees fighting for freedom. They are the colonial power whose soldiers fire bullets into holy places, and they will be defeated because people cannot be subjugated forever. As regular viewers of this show will know, I'm not particularly good at theology. It's not one of my strong points. Just to stick on the, on the media aspect of this very, very briefly. It is, I mean, it does feel like sometimes you've, you've gone through the looking glass when you see about how people talk about Ukraine compared to how they talk about any other conflict. And as I said in, the, in my introduction, I think we probably should be sending arms to, to Ukraine. I'm very much in favor of us trying to find a peaceful solution as, as, as quickly as possible. I'm not someone who says, don't compromise with Putin. But I feel like to have the Ukrainians in a stronger position as possible in those negotiations, because this was an unjust, aggressive war, then arming them is a good thing. That's why I also think arming the Palestinian Authority would be a good thing, because you know, j just like all these liberals and all these people, even in Labour Friends of Israel, say, what we need is a peace process, what we need is negotiations. But what they ignore is the fact that one side has all the leverage and, and the other side has none whatsoever because Israel are armed to the teeth. The Palestinians, you know, <laughs> how could they possibly have an army where they are in those occupied territories because they're under occupation, right? But then you have all these people say, oh no, what we need is negotiations. What we need is peace. Any kind of aggression from the occupied side, all that will do is provoke the occupier. All that will do is be a barrier for peace. That's a ridiculous argument. But now it's the argument that they're all saying when it comes to Ukraine. And anyone who even suggests, oh, maybe we should limit the offensive weapons that we send to Ukraine. Now, as I said, I'm fairly comfortable with that. I do worry about escalation towards sort of a nuclear war, but I'm fairly comfortable on the, the righteousness of, of arming this invaded people. If you suggest anything remotely similar to that when it comes to Palestine, as Barnaby says, you'll be considered terrorist. Prevent will be knocking on your door. This is just the double standards are mind blowing. Let's go to our next story. Boris Johnson's time is up, or at least it should be. He has already received one fine for a party during lockdown, and several more are expected to be issued soon. And on Tuesday, which is Johnson's 1,000th day in office, he will face MPs in the Commons. They are likely to focus on the accusation that he deliberately misled Parliament when he said that no COVID rules had been broken. We've heard the PM's excuses before on that front. He'll say that even if he was at the parties, he didn't know that they were parties. It was always ridiculous, and it's just got even harder to maintain, according to the Sunday Times. The event expected to create the biggest headache was on November 13th, 2020, to mark the exit of Lee Kane, the number 10 director of communications, which insiders say was instigated by Johnson. This wasn't a leaving drinks, said one source, until the Prime Minister arrived. This was the usual press office Friday evening wash-up drinks. Boris came fumbling over, red box in tow, and he gathered the staff around the press office table, which did have bottles of alcohol on it. He said he wanted to say a few words for Lee and started pouring drinks for people and drinking himself. He toasted him. A photographer is said to have been present throughout and is thought to have captured pictures of Johnson. If this turns out to be true, it will mean that not only did the PM break his own laws, but he encouraged others to break them as well. So far, though, Johnson has proved pretty Teflon with his own MPs. After all, these are the only people who can topple him. Only one MP has called for his resignation since he received the fine, and only one minister has stepped down. 
This reticence might be because MPs are now focused on a crucial by-election that will take place in Wakefield and the local elections that will happen across the country on the 5th of May. But that silence might well backfire. The Times commissioned a survey over the weekend and its results are dramatic to say the least. Nearly 2,000 people from all sectors of society were asked to say what they thought of Johnson in a few words. And this is the word cloud that emerged from their responses. So in case you haven't seen a, a word cloud before, the more a word is used, the larger it appears in the image. And the one which stands out here above all others is liar. Not far off or incompetent, buffoon, untrustworthy and idiot. In that poll, only 16% of responses were positive. A whopping 72% of respondents had only negative things to say about Boris Johnson. Now, James Johnson, no relation, is the pollster who conducted the research and he tweeted some of the descriptions people gave of the Prime Minister. They include out-of-touch criminal, stupid, bad hair, liar. He needs to be fired from his current role. He has broken so many COVID rules and ain't playing a part with helping the people with their bills and high cost of living. Lawbreaker, liar, and not for the people. I've got a few more for you as well. At first, I really liked him and felt he would be good for the country. But now he has been in power. He has been one of the worst prime ministers ever. He is so out of touch and has no idea how the majority of people live their lives. And then we have utter anus. It's hard to see how this won't taint the Tories in the elections next month. Barnaby, he's clinging on. But I was looking at this polling and also the things that you know people were saying about Boris Johnson. This pollster James Johnson was saying... Labour voters used to call Boris Johnson a liar. That used to be something that, you know, Tory voters just saw as a Labour attack. Now they are organically, without prompting, calling him a liar. Is it over for him? And also now it seems to be over for Rishi Sunak. What the hell are the Conservatives going to do? They are in a crisis, aren't they? Well, I worry about personalising this too much. Uh, you know, the, the Prime Minister clearly thinks there are two kinds of people. There are the little people who must obey the laws that he makes. And there are him and his friends who can do as they please. And then minions have to kind of mop up the mess. You know, doctors and nurses left with poor equipment and reduced budgets to help any workers that Boris infected by having them serve drinks at his parties. We all know this about Boris Johnson. And Rishi Sunak was supposedly the kind of cleaner candidate. Well, now we know that he and his family hide money from the tax man perfectly legally in a system that they and their friends have set up while asking other people to pay on time or risk fines and prison. So it, it turns out that this kind of split view, one law for us, another for you, is not unique to Boris Johnson at all. In fact, it's just what class society is. It's what lets politicians slash education funding so some kids learn in leaky classrooms while their own children study in perfectly equipped private schools. It's the principle that sees bosses slashing pay and pensions for their workers whose families then suffer while those bosses buy yachts for themselves and their families. It's what allows the queen to bung money to her son to protect him from the women he abuses. It's what lets Western leaders condemn Putin's massacres in Ukraine while they bomb hospitals in Afghanistan. One law for them, another for us, is just what capitalism is. It's a social system premised on the ownership of resources by a few, control over our futures by a few. So, of course, capitalism has a tenuous relationship with political democracy and any idea of equality, including equality before the law. Now, Johnson's just too obvious about all that. He's too blatant about it. He's almost proud of it. And so he may embarrass his party. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this kind of class contempt for most people, this view of a world divided between the rulers and the rest, is limited to Johnson. It is simply the way our world works. 
next story. The Tories' plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda has rightly caused outrage, but for a few commentators, the full reality of the policy took a while to sink in. Three days after it was announced, Piers Morgan tweeted, Just discovered our new humanitarian refugee plan is to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, and if their application is successful, leave them there. I wonder how many people realise that sting in the tail. I also wonder how this qualifies as humanitarian. Now, it might have taken him three days, but Piers Morgan is right. If Patel's plans go ahead, even if a migrant is found to qualify as an asylum seeker once they arrive in Rwanda, they won't get to come back to the UK. They're stuck there. Those are the facts. But we might ask, why did it take Piers Morgan so long to get there? Well, in his defence, much of the media have reported the Tories' plans in misleading terms. It's described as a plan to process asylum seekers abroad, as opposed to a plan to deport them and ensure they never come back. But the Tories, for their part, didn't hide the harsh reality of their policy. This was Priti Patel and Boris Johnson announcing it. This will see some of those arriving illegally in the UK, such as those crossing the channel in dangerous small boats, relocated to Rwanda to resettle and to rebuild their lives in the way in which the minister has just outlined. Because it means that economic migrants taking advantage of the asylum system will not get to stay in the UK, while those in genuine need uh, will be properly protected including with access to legal services on arrival in Rwanda. And given the opportunity to build a new life in that dynamic country, supported by the funding we are providing. So Boris Johnson and Priti Patel explicitly said that asylum seekers, whether they like it or not, will be permanently resettled in Rwanda. Yet Piers Morgan, initially at least, just couldn't believe that could be true. Even when the Tories said exactly who they were, Morgan gave them the benefit of the doubt. And what stands out to me here is the contrast with how Jeremy Corbyn's announcements were received. He would say he wants to help fund independent media and regulate corporate control of the press. The pundit class would receive that as Corbyn wants a Stalinist crackdown on free speech. Yet now when Boris Johnson and Priti Patel stand up and explicitly say they'll deport asylum seekers without looking at their claims and that they'll never be able to come back, the pundit class assume that surely the Tories must mean they'll, they'll only send them there for processing. Another example of this phenomenon was Ian Dale. Following the announcements you just saw from Boris Johnson and Priti Patel, he had this conversation with an expert. Larry Botanik is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, acting representative to the UK. Larry, very good evening. Well, what's your reaction to the, this announcement today? Uh, thanks for <clears throat> having me. The only... Um slight change I would make to your introduction was recognized refugees. I think once they're in Rwanda, they won't be brought back to the UK. That's at least how um, we read the plan. Um, our well, reaction... Well, well, surely if they're, given, if they're given asylum, they would they would be. Otherwise, what's the point? The, the, the point is, as you put it earlier, to deter people from coming over. They would uh, be refugees in Rwanda and be expected to rebuild their lives there. I, unless someone had a family member that, that appears here, there's nothing in the MOU, in our quick reading of it, that indicates recognized refugees will be brought back. It's not to integrate into the UK, it's to be processed and, and remain in Rwanda, as far as we can tell. 
Well, well, that would certainly not, Boris, neither Boris Johnson nor Pretty Patel made that clear today. I would, would have automatically assumed that they, if they were asking for asylum to the UK, and and then they were taken to Rwanda, if they got asylum, they would then be brought back to the UK. Otherwise, they'd be applying for asylum in Rwanda. Well, the intent is not to give people a choice where they apply. It's to uh, make them stay in France or or somewhere else in the EU. It's to keep them from getting on the boat. I, I'm not. No, position. no, I, I get, I get that, but it, it makes absolutely no sense to uh, not bring them back if they if they are applying for asylum in the UK and they are granted asylum, then come back to the UK. They surely must. No, but if you're trying to deter them from coming, and as you put it, seventy or eighty percent have a good claim, then there wouldn't be any point in bringing them back. It wouldn't be a deterrence; it would just be a delay. I'm, I'm pretty well, confident. I, I, I hesitate to disagree with you, but I can't believe that there is any logic in that at all, because otherwise they would then have to apply for asylum to the Rwandan government, not the British government. Well, that's what they end up doing. They apply to Rwanda and they're decided by but, Rwanda. But, but, well, okay, well, let, let's leave that one hanging for a moment. Now, to be fair to LBC, they didn't hide the fact their host hadn't been properly briefed. They put this social media clip out showing the exact moment the penny dropped for Ian Dale. I'm getting several people on text corroborating exactly what you just said about. I mean, I, I have to say, I'm really, really shocked by this. I mean, I thought um, it was a mad policy to begin with, but this makes it even madder. Uh, Anne in Rochester says, Hi, Ian. Uh, the BBC are reporting that refugees sent to Rwanda have to stay in Rwanda. No return to the UK. Unbelievable isn't it? Well, how, how anybody can think that that is justifiable, I do not understand. Ian Dale is a former Conservative candidate. He tried to be a Tory MP. So his shock shows Pretty Patel's plans could face a fairly broad backlash. We'll talk about that in one moment. First, though, back to the confusion about the policy. This was Home Office Minister Tom Persglove failing to demonstrate any understanding whatsoever of the country to which his government are planning to send refugees. What about stuff like uh, population, life expectancy, that kind of thing? Well, it's clearly a country that is making enormous... I mean, in terms of how many people live there and what's their life expectancy? Well, the fact is that Clearly, in Africa, um, there are many countries in Africa, and this is one that is at the forefront. Um, sorry, the sorry, the question that, was, do you, do you know the population of Rwanda? I, and do you know I'm, how I'm long afraid, people live there, the life expectancy? I'm afraid I've not got enough figures to hand this morning. But we're sending people there. We are. Clearly, in Africa, there are many countries in Africa, and this one is at the forefront. What the hell does that mean? What does that mean? This is somewhere where you are sending people who are trying to get to Britain, you're sending them halfway across the world to a country you know absolutely nothing about. And yes, even if those particular statistics he didn't know, maybe he could have you know, brought out something else of interest that he, he knew about Rwanda, that he'd been briefed before he went and did the media round. You know, This wasn't just a random guy off the street. He said, this is a country in Africa. There are lots of countries in Africa, and this is at the forefront of countries in Africa. doesn't mean anything. Now, in case you are interested, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in these things. The population of Rwanda is around 13 million. Life expectancy is 69 years. That's 12 years below the UK, where life expectancy is 81, though it is above the average for sub-Saharan Africa, where it's 62. Another fact about Rwanda that might seem relevant, their population density is 525 people per square kilometre. In the UK, it's only 281 people per square kilometre. So contrary to claims from your average racist, it turns out Britain is very far from full. 
we're sending people halfway across the world to a country which, you know, neither of these countries are full, but to a, to a country which has more of a claim to be full than we do. So on those facts and figures, Google could have helped Purs Glove. It wouldn't have done so when it comes to this next interview. This is Purs Glove speaking to Sky. What is the evidence base for the assertion from the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary that the majority, the overwhelming majority, according to Priti Patel, of people arriving in small boats are economic migrants? So what is very clear is that around 70% of the individuals who are arriving are single adult males. But my point is this, that nobody should be coming to our country via small boat, whether that be males, whether that be women, whether that be children. Everybody is leaving what are fundamentally safe countries. There are perfectly functioning asylum systems in France and in other EU countries, and people should be using them when they're in those countries rather than making these perilously unsafe journeys. So we have to take steps to address this. That's precisely what we are doing. And I think that this is an important intervention that dramatically shifts the dynamic whilst also providing opportunities and sanctuary in Rwanda for individuals who wish to have that. Sure, and I'm sorry to labour the point, Minister, but again, the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary have both claimed that part of the rationale for this is that the majority of people arriving in small boats are are economic migrants. I'm just again asking where the data is on that. We've asked the Home Office for it plenty of times. It's never been produced. Indeed, the Refugee Council suggests actually a significant majority of people who arrive in small boats are actually successful in their asylum claims, that they're not economic migrants at all. The key principle here is that nobody should be getting in a small boat to come to the United Kingdom. We, quite rightly, have a rich and proud history in this country of providing sanctuary for thousands of people over the years. And you look at recent events with Ukraine and with Afghanistan, where we've established bespoke schemes and we'll continue to do that. But what we can't have and what we can't accept is people putting their lives in the hands of these evil criminal gangs. That's why we think it's important to take these steps. And that's why we're we're pursuing this with Digger. We think this is an important intervention that we're making as part of the much wider package of reforms that we're introducing. Yeah, I, I... I will note that, again, I have asked that question and the evidence base has not been brought forward. So perhaps the government can stop maintaining that the majority of people coming across the channel are economic migrants without giving us the, the, the detail in all of this. Refugee Council analysis of the Home Office's own data suggests a full 61% of migrants who travel to Britain by boat successfully claim asylum, meaning they are, according even to the Home Office, genuine refugees. And no, the Tories can't suddenly rewrite humanitarian international law so that single men cannot be refugees. They can. There is no lawyer who will say that is a legitimate argument to make. And that then was a Tory arguing with facts. The Easter weekend also saw ministers getting into rows with God. It all started when the Archbishop of Canterbury used his Easter address to say this. And this season is also why there are such serious ethical questions about sending asylum seekers overseas. The details are for politics and politicians. The principle must stand the judgment of God, and it cannot. It cannot carry the weight of resurrection justice. It cannot carry the weight of life-conquering death. It cannot carry the weight of the resurrection that was revealed first to the least valued, 
for as a policy it privileges the rich and the strong. And it cannot carry the weight of our national responsibility as a country formed by Christian values, because subcontracting out our responsibilities, even to a country that seeks to do well, like Rwanda, is the opposite of the nature of God, who himself took responsibility for our failures. Tory MP for Ipswich, Tom Hunt, hit back saying, the leaders of the Church of England should be wary about clumsily intervening into complex political issues at the best of times. To do so on Easter Sunday feels very wrong. Archbishop of York views particularly wrong-headed, claims he's in tune with the majority of the public. So we showed you the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of York made a similar claim. I love this idea that Christians, you know, the, you definitely shouldn't speak at uh, special Christian events. I mean, that's obviously the, the time when they are most likely to make these kind of statements. Pretty Patel has also written an article which has been seen as a rebuke to the Archbishop. It was written with her Rwandan counterpart and declared, we are taking bold and innovative steps and it's surprising that those institutions that criticise the plans fail to offer their own solutions. Successfully implementing this ambitious partnership will require concerted effort. Now, this seems very disingenuous to me. On the one hand, we don't expect the Church of England to write policy documents, but they do you know, make moral judgments about things. That's perfectly normal. Also, there is a very obvious alternative solution, which experts have been talking about for years now. It's processing asylum claims in France. If you don't want people to cross the channel to claim asylum in Britain, then let them claim asylum in France. Barnaby, the Rwanda asylum plan was, I mean, obviously an attempt to get the government some friendly headlines before the local elections. They want to talk about migration instead of cost of living, instead of party gate. Do you think that this, you know, reasonably broad backlash suggests that maybe it's backfired? I don't know if it'll work. It will get the right headlines in the tabloid press, and that may be all they care about. It is a policy sustained by utter contempt for truth. I mean, take the two talking points the government uses. They use these talking points openly relaxed about the contempt for truth involved. They talk about safe and legal routes. They say these are refugees coming in unsafe routes. Safe and legal routes don't exist. Britain suspended, for most people, Britain suspended its refugee resettlement program at the start of COVID, hasn't properly restored it. Priti Patel had to row back a claim she made in Parliament that, this, that, that her Nationality and Borders Bill would include safe and legal routes because it doesn't. So they say they castigate people for putting their lives at risk on dinghies. They say people didn't put their lives at risk on dinghies so much a few years ago. That's because people bundled themselves into trucks, which now that's been stopped mostly. So they, they attack people for putting their lives at risk on dinghies. They attack the people who drown as if they've chosen to, to risk drowning for themselves and their families uh, and speak to the public as if safe and legal routes to get to Britain are available. And for most people, they're not. There are simple solutions, like allowing people to claim asylum in embassies all over the world. There are simple solutions, like ensuring the asylum system doesn't take years and years while people wait for their claims to be processed. There are simple solutions, like allowing people to work while they are waiting for asylum claims. Uh, none of these things the government pursues. Instead, it pursues this kind of violence. The second talking point is to say that the real problem here, the real violent people are traffickers. This is this kind of awful mechanism by which uh, people committing acts of violence try to wash their hands of responsibility. They say, we've shut down 
all safe and legal routes for most people most of the time. And then when some people in the cracks try to make some money risking people's lives on unsafe boats, we'll say they're the root of the problem. No, you, the state, are the root of the problem. Traffickers wouldn't have a business model if it weren't for the way you behaved. Now, when Israel did this a few years ago, sending people to Uganda and Rwanda, settler colonies are often laboratories for Western violence. Refugees just left when they got to Uganda and Rwanda. The policy was a total flop. So now there have been suggestions that people were sent back there and they just came back north to Europe. So now there have been suggestions that Britain will help Rwanda to build prisons to incarcerate the refugees uh, who are sent there while they wait for a judgment could be years because asylum claims take a long time to process in Britain. I don't think they'll be much quicker in Rwanda. What about those prisons that Britain might, may be helping Rwanda to build? Well, when refugees in migrant prisons protested in Rwanda uh, in 2018 against cuts to their food rations, the Rwandan state opened fire, fired live ammunition against refugee protesters, killing at least 12 of them. The Rwandan state then charged 60 protesters with rebellion just for asking for enough food to eat. Paul Kagame's regime in Rwanda stands accused of extrajudicial killings, of torture, the assassination of political opponents. Those opponents of his regime have been kidnapped and strangled in hotel rooms, even when they escape the country, targeted as far afield as Dubai and South Africa. And the British government has warned Kagame critics in Britain that their lives may be at risk. This is the state with which Britain now wants to do a deal. This is the contempt they now show for refugees. It gets even more absurd. Britain gave four people, at least last year, four people asylum from Rwanda. So I want to know, will refugees from Rwanda be handed back by the British state to Rwanda? And if they get asylum, if the British state says, yes, you've been targeted horrendously by this regime in Rwanda, you can have asylum. Will that asylum mean that they'll be able to live in Rwanda? Because that's what it will mean for most people. What about Ukrainians? We, we're told this won't apply to them. The British state says it's so concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. They're refugees that the state likes, so, so they won't be treated appallingly. Only refugees the state doesn't like will be treated appallingly. So just think of that. The difference between an economic migrant and a refugee, the legal difference isn't an act of God. It's a difference in law. It's a difference in judgment. You become an economic migrant the moment a state doesn't recognize you as a refugee. So when the state says all these people are just economic migrants, bear in mind that in 2015, massive flows of migration, but everyone coming from Syria was recognized as a refugee and everyone coming from Afghanistan, uh, fr from Iraq, for example. Now they've narrowed the net gradually more and more and more. They've used that category economic migrants, expanded it and said that most people fleeing horrors are actually just economic migrants and they are piggybacking of the genuine refugees and they're to blame. The states that suffocate people, allow people to die, blame everyone else. Meanwhile, while the government is pursuing this plan to send people to a country that violates human rights systematically, according to the British government itself, all that the Labour Party, the official opposition can say is that the plan may be too expensive. They don't even have it in them to begin their opposition by saying this is morally despicable. Uh, they're so concerned to appease what they think of in their patronizing way as a deeply racist country that the official opposition won't say anything more than the fact that horrors cost too much money. And if only they were cheaper, then maybe it would be okay to imprison people in a country whose soldiers and police shoot refugees when they protest for extra food. That's what's come of the British state and of the official opposition in Britain. Barnaby, a pleasure to be back on the show with you. It's so much more fun than just watching you feeling sick at home. A real pleasure this evening. Thank you so much for joining me as ever. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. Enjoy the rest of your bank holiday. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.